you're in the library, so you don't want to talk too loud. Um, it's wonderful to have you here today for this uh, lecture, which is part of the events of Religious Diversity Day, which is a Villanova tradition uh, celebrating the diversity of religious backgrounds um, of our students and staff and faculty. And uh, we had a fair out on the Oreo earlier this afternoon. Um, and uh, after this event at five o'clock over in uh, St. Augustine Center, we'll have uh, our multi-faith prayer gathering. Um, and you're certainly welcome to join us for that. Uh, my name's Julie Sheets, and I am a um, campus minister here at Villanova. Uh, with a special emphasis on ecumenical and interfaith outreach. And so um, this is uh, the fact that there is a position like this at Villanova is part of the university's affirmation of how important it is to um, nurture the spiritual seeking of all people. And so I'm, I'm really grateful to be here um, and to uh, be a part of this event today and also want to say thank you to the folks at the library here who've been great at helping organize uh, today's lecture. So I'm going to do a brief introductions of our speaker and our respondents and then um, let them uh, hold forth and uh, share their reflections. And we want to leave plenty of time at the end for questions and, and discussions. So I uh, hope that you will be an active part of this uh, gathering today. Our speaker um, is Dr. Danielle Mark, who is an, a member of the political science department here at Villanova, although he is uh, not here this year because he's uh, spending the year as a visiting fellow in the Department of Politics at Princeton University under the sponsorship of the James Madison Center for Program in American Ideals and Institutions. His areas of expertise include political theory, philosophy of law, politics, law, and religion, constitutional law, and the Supreme Court, and studies in Christianity and Judaism. In 2014, Dr. Mark was named to the U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom. In this role, he monitors with other members of the commission the universal right to uh, freedom of religious practice and belief, and makes policy recommendations to the President, Secretary of State, and Congress. He's been a fellow at the Witherspoon Institute and at the Stratus Center for Torah and Western Thought at Yeshiva University. He also serves as faculty associate at Villanova's Matthew J. Ryan Center for the Study of Free Institutions and the Public Good. And he will be presenting a session later this month at the World Meeting of Families. Our first respondent is Ms. Zakia Islam, who teaches in the Religion and Intellectual Heritage Departments at Temple University. Uh, a first generation immigrant from South Asia, Ms. Islam has worked as an educator across three continents. She currently teaches courses in Religions of the World and Death and Dying. In addition to teaching, she's worked in the areas of youth and adult literacy, as well as in prisons and nursing homes. She's been actively involved with interfaith work at all levels for the past 15 years, 
and collaborates frequently with the Interfaith Center of Greater Philadelphia. And she's actively involved in Muslim immigrant and refugee resettlement. Our second respondent is Dr. Catherine Gedek-Soltis, who serves as director of the Villanova Center for Peace and Justice Education and is a faculty member in the Theology and Religious Studies Department as assistant professor of Christian ethics. Her research interests include various issues within the fields of theological ethics and Catholic moral theology. And in particular, much of her work pursues questions of virtue ethics as they apply to justice, punishment, and prisons. Catholic social te teaching, especially the concept of the common good, figures importantly in her writing and teaching, and she's currently teaching a course on ethics, justice, and the family. And finally, uh, our third respondent, Dr. Carrie Sanchurico, joined the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies this fall as assistant professor of interfaith and interreligious studies. His expertise is in global Christianities and Indian religions, and his scholarly interests include interreligious interaction, minority religions in India, Christian mission history, comparative theology, anthropology of religion, and theory and method in the study of religion. An Eastern Orthodox Christian he has lived and traveled extensively in India. And prior to coming to Villanova, he was on the faculty at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So please join me in thanking all of our... Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much. As you heard, I'm Daniel Mark. I'm a professor here in the political science department. Um, it's good I'm speaking on the topic of forgiveness, probably beg forgiveness in advance of the rest of the library. Uh, I'm sure this is uh, not exactly what they signed up for when they came here to study, but uh, you know. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much to Reverend Sheets uh, for inviting me to do this, for the commenters uh, in advance, for your comments uh, on my thoughts. Uh, thank you uh, to my students and friends who are here to hear me speak. That's very flattering uh, because the rest of you don't know what you're in for. They know me already <laughs> and they still showed up. So I don't have an explanation, but so be it. Um, while, we're on the, while we're on the topic of uh, religious diversity, I'll tell you something uh, about Judaism uh, that you don't know, all, all of you but one uh, here don't know, uh, which is that today is actually a Jewish fast day. It's called the Fast of Gedalia. Uh, it's named after a fellow named Gedalia who was killed on this day and why that makes it a fast day uh, leave for another time, um, but uh, I will say also uh, to, to excuse myself in advance, uh, unlike the way Catholic fasts are observed by most people most of the time, our fasts mean no eating or drinking for real, uh, and, so it's, uh, uh, and so this is, uh, will be a long day um, without any food or water and a lot of running around. Um, and on that topic, while I'm getting my money's worth out of the fast day, um, I'm speaking as well this evening here at 6 o'clock. Um, we're having a panel discussion on the Pope's encyclical on the environment, Laudato Si, that was released this summer. Um, and that's in Driscoll Auditorium at 6 o'clock. And of course, uh, I can't vouch for the quality of the other panelists, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but feel free. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they're great. I just don't know them. Um, and so, uh, so feel free to join us there as well if you'd like. It'll be another, another good uh, interfaith event. Well, I want to begin by introducing a pretty crazy story at the beginning of chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. After three years of famine, King David turns to the Lord to inquire as to the reason for this punishment of Israel. God answers him that the famine that has been plaguing Israel for three years is a punishment 
for Saul's blood-stained house, meaning because Saul, who was the king before David, had killed the Gibeonites. The actual story of Saul's connection to the Gibeonites is a bit more complicated. He didn't really go out and kill them directly, but for our purposes, suffice it to say that Saul was responsible for the deaths of many members of this small tribe living within Israel. So, to end the famine, David summons the Gibeonites and asks how Israel can atone for his predecessor Saul's crimes against them. Grimly, they reply that they wish to see seven of Saul's male descendants, his grandchildren essentially, executed and their bodies left on display. David acquiesces. The Talmud, which is the rabbinic exposition and interpretation of the Bible, cites this story to address the question of why the Gibeonites were one of the few groups who, according to religious decree of the rabbis, were not permitted to convert into Israel. Ordinarily, a Gentile who wants to convert to, Juda to Judaism is permitted, though discouraged. But the Gibeonites were under a permanent ban. The rabbis of the Talmud explain, quote, David tried to pacify the Gibeonites, but they would not be pacified. Thereupon he said to them, This nation is distinguished by three characteristics. They are merciful, modest, and benevolent. Only he who cultivates these three characteristics is fit to join this nation. Close quote. This raises a question. On one hand, the Gibeonites were entitled to justice against Saul, and they got it. On the other hand, they were prohibited from converting due to their lack of mercy. But this is a bit strange. Did they do something wrong or not? If it was wrong, then why did David go along? And if it was right, then why the permanent ban on their conversion to Judaism? Jewish legal scholar Suzanne Last Stone explains it this way. The Gibeonites, victims of Saul's violence, were entitled to justice. They had a right to justice, that is, a right to see Saul punished. And let's leave aside the fact that with Saul long dead, the punishment was visited upon his descendants and not upon him. But they did not need to stand on this right. They could have relinquished it. In mercy, they could have forgone justice. This is why the Gibeonites receive their justice, but are condemned to remain outside the people of Israel. But this does not fully answer the question. Are the Gibeonites being punished for demanding justice to what they were entitled, to which they were entitled? No. The decree banning the Gibeonites from joining Israel was not a punishment. Justice is the appropriate virtue of a political community. And as a political community, the kingdom of Israel owed the Gibeonites the justice they demanded, grim though it was. But the people of Israel is not just a political community, a kingdom. The people of Israel is also a family. And for a family, the central virtue is not justice, but mercy. The Talmud tells us, as you just heard, that mercy is one of the three main traits of Israel. Therefore, lacking mercy, the Gibeonites were unfit to join this family. Let me elaborate on this point about the family. We are all born with inalienable rights, God-given rights, natural rights. In society, we have government and laws to protect those rights, such as the right to life, liberty, and property. Above all, we have the right to be treated fairly, and it is the government's job to step in when we are not, that is, when we are unfairly deprived by others of our life, liberty, or property. 
This is what it means to be a citizen in a modern polity just as such, to respect the rights of others and to cooperate in a system that protects those rights. To the extent that we wish for more than that in our shared lives together, it is because we wish to be a part of more than just a bare political community. We often wish for our society to be more like a real community, that is, more like an extended family. But to be a family is to begin not from a position of standing on one's rights, but from a position of relinquishing them. Those who stand on their rights are fit for membership in a political community, and they are entitled to justice, but they are not fit for membership in the family of Israel. Notice the difference. If some members of the political community reap the benefits of the law without bearing a proportionate share of the burdens, then the law can, can and should step in to rectify the situation. But in a family, burdens are rarely, if ever, distributed evenly. Parents sacrifice for their children endlessly, and I don't just mean paying Villanova tuition. <laughs> to be sure, Parents usually want to make such, such sacrifices, even when they come at great cost. But acceptance of this maldistribution is necessary even when the burdens are unwanted. If one family member burdens or betrays another, the one who has been burdened or betrayed may be entitled to recompense. But such an exacting approach, while good for justice, will be bad for family life. This applies just as well to the mundane circumstances of ordinary life. If one child hogs the bathroom in the morning, it is truly unfair to his siblings. They have a right to equal time in the bathroom to, to prepare for their own day. And they probably have a right to insist that the selfish sibling respect this. But it is probably plain and intuitive to everyone that family relationships are not healthy if they are based first and foremost on who owes what to whom. There can be no family life if everyone insists all the time on an exact accounting of gains and losses. There can be no family life if everyone stands on his rights all the time. There can be no family life without forgiveness. This, I believe, is a broad human truth that applies to Jews and Christians alike. So that is my first point, that mercy and forgiveness are at the heart of family life and what makes family life fundamentally distinct from human associations, including or especially political associations. But now I would like to turn to an important difference between Christianity and Judaism, eloquently explored by Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik, a young rabbi in New York, in a 2007 First Things article called The Virtue of Hate. The piece opens with a story by Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Holocaust survivor, when he, as a concentration camp prisoner, was brought to the bedside of a dying Nazi who wished to confess his sins and ask forgiveness. Quote, unable to comply, but unable to condemn, close quote, Soloveitchik writes, Wiesenthal simply walked away. From there into the fascinating discussion of whether one must forgive terribly wicked people who have committed the worst atrocities. At the root of this, in part, this difference, between Judaism and Christianity and this discussion in his article, The Virtue of Hate, is the New Testament's injunction to love one's enemies, which does not have a parallel in the Jewish tradition. This Christian ethic was powerfully on display, for example, this summer after the Charleston shooting. 
in the forgiveness extended to the shooter quite publicly after the, uh, by the families of the victims. I don't want to criticize Judaism to a mostly Christian audience, but I think there is something important to learn from this Christian principle. Even conventional wisdom about human psychology tells us that we are better off not holding grudges. At the same time, we have to balance forgiveness with the risk of getting taken advantage of, or worse, letting others get hurt. The rabbis have an expression that loosely translates as, those who are kind to the cruel will in the end be cruel to the kind. To be clear, I am not saying that Christian forgiveness requires letting people take advantage of us or of others, but we must be sure that our mercy does not abet injustice. This brings me neatly to another reason that forgiveness can be so hard and that makes the Charleston case and ones like it so remarkable. The inestimable Leon Cass, who in his work on bioethics has opposed those who see human immortality as a worthy end of science, without changing his underlying view, once remarked that it was easy for him to be opposed to the, the attempt to extend life endlessly until he was faced with the mortality <coughs> of those he loved most. And because he recently lost his beloved and magnificent wife, I make this point with the utmost respect and somberness. For most decent people, it is easy to be sanguine about our own, easier to be sanguine about our own suffering than about the suffering of our loved ones. That's why in every spy thriller, the bad guys break the captured secret agent not by threatening him with torture, but by threatening his girlfriend or his daughter. Relatively speaking, it is easy for us to forgive those who have harmed us, but it is far harder for us to forgive those who have, who have harmed our loved ones. I can turn the other cheek to abide insults and injuries to me, but if I cared about you, I would never turn your cheek. Personally, I am a pretty non-confrontational individual, but I do stick up for those I care about in ways I would never stick up for myself. This is understandable, because when you stick up for someone else, there's no taint of self-interest. You don't have to feel ashamed as though you're putting yourself first. For this issue of balancing forgiveness with justice for the innocent third parties and defense of our loved ones, I confess, I do not have a formula, but I wanted to raise it because I think it may be the hardest case of forgiveness and because I think, I believe it helps to highlight this difference between Judaism and Christianity. To the Jewish mind, I contend, the notion of forgiving someone who has hurt our family, say someone who raped my sister or daughter, is shocking and even scandalous. But for Christians, it is a principle of the highest order and perhaps at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. One important nuance I have elided here is the matter of the state of mind of the wicked person, whether he has repented or not, that is, whether he seeks forgiveness. The reason I left it aside at first is because, as I understand it, the Christian requirement to love and forgive does not depend on whether the person seeks that love and forgiveness. Simon Wiesenthal was confronted with an allegedly repentant Nazi. But in Christianity, as I understand it, even the unrepentant Nazi must be loved and forgiven. The message of the gospel is that we are all sinners, all requiring and all undeserving of God's grace, and he gives it to us freely as a gift, despite our lack of merit. If this is the case, then God's grace could extend even to the unrepentant, 
for being unrepentant is just one more way in which we can fail to deserve God's grace. But we all fail to deserve it in some way. Right now, we are at a very auspicious and solemn time in the Jewish calendar. In the midst of the ten days of repentance that begin with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and end with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the two holidays that together make up the Days of Awe, or more commonly in English, the High Holidays. That period, and the month preceding it, are a time for taking stock of the previous year and accounting for one's misdeeds. It is a time of heightened attention, of a heightened attention to the ever-present requirement to ask forgiveness of those whom we have harmed, and of the reciprocal requirement to forgive those who seek our forgiveness. There is even a rabbinic teaching that whereas the Yom Kippur service brings atonement for sins committed against God, God does not forgive the sins we commit against others unless we seek forgiveness from them first. So, as in Christianity, there is an obligation to forgive, but that is only an obligation to forgive those who seek our forgiveness. As I just noted before, we do have very human reasons to think that for our own sake, we ought to forgive those who have harmed us even when they don't seek our forgiveness and even when they'll never know because of how forgiveness changes us. I propose that this, is also an that this is also important because it brings us closer to reconciliation. Consider the case of two friends or spouses or siblings who are estranged from one another, each one thinking that the other has done him or her harm. This is often the case when people break up or separate. Reconciliation is so hard in those cases because neither party thinks the blame is on his side and therefore neither will apologize. And because neither will apologize, neither will forgive. Reconciliation thereby becomes very difficult. Part of the Christian answer to this, I believe, and I emphasize only part, you'll have to come to my talk next Thursday at the World Meeting of Families for the whole thing, is that we, ought, is that we must break the cycle by offering forgiveness that is not sought. But this solution is fraught with difficulty as well. If we reflect more carefully on the situation I just described, the two parties fail to reconcile, not because each one is waiting for forgiveness, but because each one is waiting for an apology. Indeed, offering the other party forgiveness could potentially exacerbate the situation when it is unsought, because it necessarily implies that the other person is in need of forgiveness. It says, you wronged me and I forgive you. This may very well be true, but the other party may hear the first part, the blame, louder than the second part, the absolution. That is, to offer unsought forgiveness can be taken as yet further insult. You forgive me? I'm not the one who needs forgiveness. Perhaps the way around this problem is that in such sensitive cases, we should forgive each other in our hearts. The problem there is that when we forgive in a private way, it is hard to see it as a step toward reconciliation. If mutual forgiveness is necessary for us to reconcile, how can it work when it remains in the privacy of our hearts? For this, I suppose the best we can say is that by forgiving in our hearts, we soften our hearts to the other person, even if the other person doesn't know it. If this forgiveness of the heart occurs on both sides, then perhaps, perhaps, we will eventually be ready to accept one another's forgiveness and perhaps even to offer an apology. To be sure, there is nothing in Judaism that rules this out. 
But there is something significant in the fact that such forgiveness, forgiveness of those who do not seek it, is not required in Judaism, whereas it is in Christianity. In this respect, we might say that Judaism has an ambivalent response to the parable of the prodigal son. On one hand, we can appreciate its message. On the other hand, I wonder whether faithful Jews do not identify with the older son, which is probably how the parable was intended. On one hand, the Bible is replete with assurances of God's inexhaustible forgiveness of Israel despite her frequent and egregious betrayals. On the other hand, in relation to Christianity, the Jew who keeps the law day in and day out, who has not had the law fulfilled for him but must fulfill it himself, and who does not expect grace and redemption to come so freelessly and instantaneously, feels that the older son has a point. There is comfort for him because he is reminded of his great inheritance, but that does not really address the complaint, as it were, about his younger brother. So how can we sum this up? How can we characterize this difference? Is the Christian view more beautiful and more inspiring, while the Jewish view is more sober and more human? Is hatred of the wicked necessary to protect the innocent? Or is love for enemies necessary to bring reconciliation and final peace? And what does this mean both for the deep theological divide between the two faiths and for the different ways in which we live out our religious lives? I conclude here with questions rather than answers, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Good evening, and thank you for being here at this time of day. I was kind of surprised with the attendance because uh, I'm just surprised if anybody comes at this time of the day to <laughs> talk and everything. Yeah. Um, uh, as a Muslim, I should be starting with Assalamu Alaikum, which means the usual Muslim greeting, which is peace be upon you, and also with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim which means, which has three names of God, which means uh, in the name of God, the most beneficent, the merciful. So um, every Muslim is supposed to begin anything and everything with Bismillah Rahman Rahim, with these three names of God. At the very outset, we need to note that the fact that the attributive name of mercy and compassion is integral to every act speaks uh, volumes about their role in our lives. The parable of the prodigal son fits the Islamic pers perspective like a glove. So my response will anchor on to that because I haven't been given much time. So I, I wish I could <laughs> respond to a lot of that. It, it is so interesting. But I just uh, anchor it to that. But first I need to walk you through the concepts of tawheed and submission to get that perspective. The crux of Islam is tawheed. Like most profound scriptural terms, it is untranslatable. Oneness could be oneness, could be an approximate meaning for this infinitely layered term. Tawheed or oneness is the only reality. This is the essential cradle core of Islam. From that point of oneness comes all the multiplicity. The multiplicity is within all that is created for experiencing back to the oneness, to the ultimate oneness. So this process entails progression. It's a progression back to the oneness. This process is initiated with the statement of faith, very important Islam. The statement delineates the structure involved in such progression. 
Now, one thing I have to make clear, that central for Muslims is the Quran, the scripture. Uh, and this is, uh, this I have to reiterate again and again, because with the mainstream Christianity, it's Christ. So Christians tend to transfer that idea uh, to other religions, but for Islam, it's the book, it's the Quran. And the Quran kind of delineates the structure in verse two, line 285, saying that one has to believe in God, his angels, his revelations, and all his prophets, starting from Adam, name it Abraham, Job, um, Moses, uh, I, Job was before I think, Moses, <laughs> Jesus, Muhammad, all of them. And it says, making, and I'm quoting directly, making no distinction between any of these people. And then it's a prayer, O oh, sustainer, for with thee is all journeys end. Back to the one. All journey ends at the point of Tawheed. By the way, the seat is the heart. So when uh, Rabbi um, Daniel was talking the heart, the seat is the heart. It's very, very primary to the Islamic perspective. It follows, therefore, that all religion is one. And the return is but an experiential realization of the Tawheed. The aforesaid structure is determined by Adal and Ihsan, justice and compassion. Adal is justice and Ihsan is compassion. From Adal or justice, the Quran goes beyond this concept to Ihsan or compassion. This is interesting. Ihsan literally means restoring the balance by making up a loss or deficiency. This balance is fundamental to creation. Balance is a word very, very significant in the Quran. The prevalent message is that compassion underlies all creation. Of the attributive names of God, Rahman and Rahim, which I uttered in the beginning, are the most prevalent in the Quran. The root word for these names is a mother's womb. Think of that, mother's womb, which connotes the essential nurturing in the compassion. It's not just compassion, it's a very nurturing compassion. So the faith in the oneness leads the creation being directed by Adam and Isan, justice and compassion, with compassion having a larger role, because that is balancing it out. So not only Isan or compassion is one part of the scale of the balance, it has the deeper dynamic role of balance restoration, one of the little meanings, by making up for deficiencies. Therein lies the vital role of forgiveness. Islam believes in man being born innocent, very different from the Christian perspective. Man is born innocent. There is no original son in Islam. They have the potentiality to progress to the divine or become the lowest of the low, free to choose. The worldly trials are but the means for progression. Embedded in these trials are the seeds of conflict. Therein comes the role of right and wrong and the importance of forgiveness. Forgiveness can come only when in correcting the wrong, one keeps in perspective the larger context of all being one family. Only that can enable one to forgive. That is where the term Islam is derived from. It means peace through submission to the will of God. Progression entails being absorbed, surrendered, submitted to Tawheed. <coughs> Oneness. That is the struggle and the striving for Muslims. Supposedly, I wish we all Muslims thought that way and we acted that way. Conflict is the inevitable 
Conflict is inevitable in a world of differences. To accommodate, compromise, and eventually forgive is what restores the balance to the realization of tawheed or oneness. Thus are the verses speaking of justice always followed by a reminder that to forgive is better for humans. So justice is always mentioned. Okay, this is what you should be doing for that. But at the end it's saying, but to it's better to forgive. You know, the, the proverb, the forgive is divine, is kind of only said in a different way in the Quran. The Adil or justice is not in a vacuum. Variables or deficiencies have to be factored in. That's the metaphor of a family. The mother dispenses justice or disciplines children as per the child's abilities. On the other hand, the family is the smallest unit in which one gets to practice their future roles in the larger community. If one learns to balance life dictated by compassion, one can progress to the point of divinity to see all humanity as one family. The prodigal son shows the ultimate progression in the metaphor of the divine mercy embodied in the father who loves no matter what. The ultimate progression in Islam is in the ultimate humility of submission. It is only when one can efface one's ego or nafs in Arabic that one can be in the state of oneness. The prodigal son with his repentance had reached that point of egolessness when he came back to serve as a hired hand. He did not come back expecting to be received as a son. He decided to come back as a hired hand, as a servant to his father. The dutiful son needs to grow into the circle of compassion to progress to his potentiality. At the worldly level, he has his inheritance intact. He has all his money, all the fortune is going to inherit. The prodigal son has lost everything material, but he has gained humility, which from the holistic perspective is the greater gain. It is a transformative shift to ultimate oneness. Thank you. Um, just get into it since we don't have much time. Um, it, the, the topics brought me to a lot of questions and a lot of moments, but one of them um, was a moment during my graduate work in Boston when I was a lay Catholic chaplain at a correctional facility. And um, there was a female inmate who, whose father had abused her severely. And one day during the service, um, during our prayers of intention, she prayed for him for the first time in her life and forgave him. And so this is, this moment has been in my mind as I was thinking through these questions that uh, Daniel Mark has given to us today. And I think he captures well uh, the Christian approach to forgiveness, or at least the Christian approach that I really hope is true. I think we disagree about this a lot, but that we are to love even our cruelest enemies. And there's an expectation to forgive regardless of whether a person is repentant. Um, but, and he notes this, it introduces a very reasonable concern and caution um, that m mercy might abet injustice, as he said. And what does it mean to forgive an unrepentant abuser? in the case of this woman, um, does this undermine justice? So there are a number of ways that I want to respond to this question in particular, um, and I just want to highlight uh, two responses, really, and draw on a, a parable for each. So we'll get two more parables in the mix here, in addition to the prodigal son. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so the first, uh, the first response that I want to make to this question, does mercy abet injustice, is to say that fundamentally, mercy abets justice. Um, and this is to challenge the idea that mercy and justice are in opposition to one another. Uh, Professor Mark describes justice as what is owed, deserved, what one has a right to. In contrast, mercy is undeserved, and no one has a right to it. So the two seem mutually exclusive. But Christian theology offers a different account and sees mercy and justice in harmony with one another. God's forgiveness of sins um, does not violate God's justice but rather demonstrates it. Justice at its core is interested in restoring right relationships. Guilt, apology, punishment, these may be necessary in the pursuit of restored relationships, but they are not the point of justice. To get justice is to get back relationships as they ought to be. And mercy too is interested in restoration. The parable of the Good Samaritan is instructive here. The Samaritan responds to the wounded man along the road with mercy. That is, the Samaritan moves towards solidarity with him in the midst of his suffering. Most people assume that the, innocence, that the man um, by the side of the road is innocent, but we don't really know that to be true. Yes, he was robbed and beaten, but perhaps he had been in cahoots with those robbers and had turned on them. I suggest this only to note that whether he is blameworthy or not is really irrelevant. Mercy is about responding to suffering regardless of whether suffering is deserved. So to work toward justice, which is restoring right relationships, requires mercy. Uh, and so in forgiving uh, her abusive father, this daughter is pursuing justice, not casting it aside. That's what I'm trying to suggest. And why does it matter? Why does it matter to keep justice and mercy together? Well, for one reason, justice is what can keep us from a destructive vulnerability in our mercy, and perhaps what can prevent you know, uh, allowing others to be harmed by it, as, as Professor Mark notes. Another reason that we want to keep justice and mercy together is that if we separate them, it might lead us to think that forgiveness is only appropriate in certain spheres and not others. I see a danger in assigning mercy to the family exclusively and justice to the world. The world and the family are not so separate, and this is why we speak so often of treating everyone as a sister or brother. To seek a world that is more just is to seek a world that is more merciful, to get our relationships right. And in this, if we stick to a form of justice that relies on what is deserved and what is capable of being punished, then we lose the inherent connection between that justice in the face of violation and what we talk about as social justice. Um, and this relates to who we, we are becoming in our forgiving, which brings me to my second response to this question, does mercy abet injustice? So to that, I want to say, yes, mercy does sometimes abet injustice, and we may need to embrace that. Injustice is the necessary risk of mercy. Christians believe that on account of God's mercy, God took up flesh and became human. And in response, humans crucified God. Mercy enabled injustice. But the vulnerability intrinsic to mercy is there because mercy ought to be transformative and it ought to push us outward. This is why the parable of the unforgiving servant is one of my favorites. A master forgives the enormous debt of his servant and then the servant goes on to demand that his peers repay him of extremely small and petty debts. 
But the scandal here is not that the double standard exists, but that the servant was unchanged, was not transformed by the mercy shown to him. Mercy is always meant to go beyond the two original people involved. This is one reason to embrace the extensive demand for forgiveness, because eventually it impacts us all. It matters whether the people we encounter have been transformed by the mercy shown to them before. I think it's an unsettling possibility that forgiveness may be the impetus to repent of our ways. And we do also risk insulting people, as Professor Mark noted. To forgive someone who has fundamentally violated us before they see the cruelty in their ways, that may undermine the world's sense of justice. But I think it is a prophetic call to true justice. So thinking back to the, my memory of this woman in the prison, she, she prayed in public for forgiveness of an abuser. And that's a very complicated matter and a dangerous matter, especially for vulnerable people in families. But as a Christian, I recognize it is what Christ did from the cross, publicly prayed for the forgiveness of his abusers. And I wonder if such acts are what give us hope of becoming true family as sisters and brothers who are also daughters and sons of the same God. Thank you. Afternoon, everybody. We all still are still going to take this opportunity to stretch, and I'll definitely forgive you if you need to stretch right now. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, uh, everyone on the panel. I want to thank uh, Reverend Julia Sheets for asking uh, me to take part in this. Uh, second, I want to uh, thank the good professor uh, for, uh, for your remarks, because I appreciate especially um, the way you talk about difference. I think it's often the sense with uh, interreligious dialogue that um, if we're not eventually singing kumbaya, then we've done it wrong. But I think actually difference is really what we need to talk about because difference, as the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss once said, is what teaches us. Difference really teaches us. Um, I love how we are talking about forgiveness and the family uh, because this is a rather pressing and existential issue for me. You see, I have three daughters. And they are aged um, four, seven, and ten. And there's a lot of love between them, but as you can imagine, there is also a lot of fighting. From an early age, we started teaching them of the need for forgiveness in the home. And we asked that each forgive the other immediately. And um, quite unbeknownst to us, they actually started this kind of ritual. It's a formula where they both, it's very cute. It's very cute. <laughs> It goes like, one, two, three, I'm sorry. One, two, three, I forgive you. Well, that's, that's their, little, uh, their, their little liturgy, you might say. It's very cute. Uh, and they only f uh, say this if both sides feel they have both wronged each other. Um, now, usually, if you scratch the surface and you get them to talk about this, say, oh, they say, it takes two to tango. So they're OK. But even though if only one person has been slighted, um, the response is not, it's okay. Rather, it's, I forgive you. Why? Because it's not okay. Because a relationship has been breached. There has been injustice. Okay? Um, so, I forgive you. A question that I have, and I've dealt with this um, since my 10-year-old was much younger, is, is it too forced? That is, is the forgiveness authentic? My response to date has been that, yes, on the whole, this activity is right or righteous. Even if the girls initially resist, 
They are usually into it by the time the little ritual has concluded. That is, something has happened between the I'm sorry and the I forgive you. Perhaps we can say that grace has done its work, which is to give us something more than the sum of its parts. Here is where 2 plus 2 equals 5. But for it to happen, both sides need to surrender. Yes, surrender, to submit, if you will. So I would affirm, yes, to be in a family is to begin not from the position of standing on one's rights, but from a position of relinquishing them. Now, of course, we can parse this out. Maybe you want to. Now, this family practice and its understanding of forgiveness is commensurate with my own religious tradition, which happens to be Eastern Orthodox. Uh, we have another church-wide liturgical ritual involving forgiveness. In Latin Christianity, the season of Lent, of course, begins with Ash Wednesday. Uh, in Orthodox Christianity, we began Lent with what is called Forgiveness Sunday Vespers. At the evening service, towards its end, the priest assembled before the faithful asked for forgiveness of the congregation as a whole. But then a line is formed, wherein each member of the congregation, lay and clergy, form a line and begin to seek forgiveness of each other. Children and adults approach the other, bow before the other, and say, sister or brother, forgive me a sinner, to which the other person says, bowing, I forgive you, forgive me a sinner. God forgives. They conclude the exchange with kisses, or in America, hugs. That's a little indigenization for you. Uh, they kiss on each, or hug, uh, kiss on each cheek, and proceed to the next person until the line has, in fact, become a circle. And so it goes, often for about a half an hour, people bowing and prostrating before the other. Tears eventually start falling, and children smiling awkwardly, not quite understanding it, but digging the hugs and kisses nonetheless. So this is how Lent, a season of repentance, begins uh, in preparation for Pascha, that is Easter. The clear message is this. There is no salvation without forgiveness. There is no salvation without forgiveness. And here is where Jesus's hard teachings come into play. Quote, for if you forgive men and women their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It sounds kind of familiar. You'll notice that this Forgiveness Sunday ritual is rather vague. What am I forgiving exactly? I've often wondered this question. Um, what did you do to me? The point is not to cover everything, but rather to shape a trajectory of life and to bring us back to the central reality that there is no salvation without forgiveness, and that, as one Abba Isidore, a desert father, once remarked, quote, our life and our death is with our neighbor, end quote. This, he understands, is a pattern set by God and manifests definitively in Jesus' forgiveness of those who are killing him. To participate in God, to put on Christ, as the Apostle Paul, nay Saul, would put it, is to likewise be in a continual state of repentance and forgiveness seeking. And this happens always in relation. And when it happens, when two plus two equals five, we call it the kingdom of God. So what of people who do not forgive us? Abba Piman and other spiritual fathers of the desert stay, you still do it. And this explains why so many saints have embraced, undes uh, embraced undeserved suffering. 
Such is their desire to forgive and gain life that they will even not contradict an unjust accusation if it risks gaining salvation. And so here they follow the Lord who, quote, did not open his mouth. Again, the pattern belongs to Jesus. Now, this is a kind of maximum example, but it indicates the seriousness with which orthodoxy takes Jesus' teachings of forgiven, forgiving 70 times seven times, which is to say, you never stop. So I wonder, how do we translate this into political community? Especially in a pluralistic society, for, it is, for is not the political community not also a kind of family? I suspect that our notions of justice are frankly incomplete. So this is a hard teaching. To forgive our enemies when they have no intent of forgiving us, the issue is how Christians, so this is where I like to always turn to Mike a little bit. So the issue is how Christians so, can so blithely cast aside this teaching in the name of rights or justice. And how they have done this for centuries, or they hedge, or they exegete their way out of what can seem to be highly impractical. So maybe the Jewish view is indeed more sober, but maybe Jesus, maybe he's calling us to more, to the two plus two equaling five. And I think certainly this is how Mahatma Gandhi understood it. Because in the end, that is what will break the cycle of violence and hatred and vengeance. The scandal is why Christians, including myself, have done such a bad job with it. Maybe we don't really believe it at all. Like for us to open it up to a larger conversation, and we have our first uh, question and comment. So, the formulation of verse two as a Yeah. 
over and over again and say, I forgive you, you know, get me, punch me, hit me, you know, abuse me, right? So, so the, there is, again, there's a, there's a real sort of, we have to be very careful about this, right? I mean, if we say to the 10-year-old girl who's being abused, you need to forgive your father, then we are allowing the innocent to continue to not be able to have justice. Can I just respond to that? I, I don't think any of the, the scriptures ever say that uh, forgive just like that. Just there cannot be a word. It's all of the word balance is very key to all the religions. So justice is the whole idea of a person should be ready to forgive. Nobody can tell a person to forgive. So that person has to progress to the point of being able to forgive for their own psychological right, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that exactly. The ten -year -old. So a ten-year-old is not going to be told to forgive. What you said is they're absolutely correct. The, just, the justice at that point is just justice. And it, it, no difference would say this. Exactly. But the forgiveness is very internal. That's why it comes from the heart. And so it's very, very individual. Nobody can ever. One can be trained to do it as a child, as one of our parents just said, but it cannot, uh, it cannot be, nobody can tell anybody to forget. That, that is like this Oh, I, just, I want to add too, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, there are a lot I didn't say that. Of course you can. But, um, you know, for, I think also forgiveness, I was kind of careful about saying right relationships, because I think forgiveness doesn't mean you stay in the relationship, you stay there. I mean, so if, if we have justice and mercy together, I mean, it's to be how relationships ought to be, there's no way that relationship is how it ought to be. And therefore, forgiveness, you know, doesn't in, tell in you the to
um, would to be to go outside of what's required, outside of what you have to do. A whole separate discussion we'll have to have about the dichotomy and whether it works and how it works. And that's what we want to do while we respond so much. Um, uh, but so, so the reason I say that as a long introduction um, to what you were asking is the question would be in the system where there is this power structure of um, the system where it's putting the person away and then the person. Um, who's in the position to do the forgiving? Whose right is it, so to speak, right small art? Whose right is it to forgive? Um, can the judge do it? Can the judge do it on behalf of society, say, you really ought to be put in prison for this. There ought to be some kind of penalty oh, to restore the balance of benefits and burdens, um, but we're not going to. And so it's tricky there uh, because um, on one hand, the power, there, there's the system that's in power, uh, but on the other hand, it's the system that's been wrong that we need to do we need to do the forgiving, right? So none of us parked at the fire hydrant. We all drove around and around and around and around looking for a parking spot. Uh, and then you just drive up, you're like, ah, this is great, free spot, right? Uh, so right, so all of us, so we put you away. Or the well, you the right? um, we are the power, uh, and you are the prisoners. Uh, uh, but it's a funny kind of verse. It's we that need to be forgiving for these actions. Um, on the international level, I thought immediately of Chameleon Dialogue. Right? This famous, um, um, this famous story of the Athenians who say chameleons, um, uh, say that you know surrender uh, or we'll kill all of you and, and they are famous line the Melians say it's wrong but the Athenians say well the the, the, the strong do what they can and the weak uh, suffer what they must um, and so 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 I want to take it from the domestic situation to international relation and what would that mean right the uh, the, uh, the colonized peoples have a lot of forgiving to do of the colonizing peoples right and uh, are, are they the ones who are in the wrong for not forgiving, right? And so, so I wonder, just to complicate, you know, the, the Christian question, right? So there's there's a lot of forgiveness owed to oppressed peoples by oppressor peoples, um, and so do we point to them and say, where is the is the forgiveness forthcoming? Why is the forgiveness not forthcoming? I'm not saying that's not right. Maybe that's the, you know, where is uh, um, the the colonial powers are uh, in their righteousness waiting for their forgiveness that is owed to them. Uh, but, but of course, the truth is right. It's, it's, now, how do we? So I just say this again to end with a question. Then, how do we transfer um, uh, this thing that seems pretty nicely packaged, as you said, with interpersonal relations, onto uh, a global level? Um, and what does it mean for weaker peoples um, to uh, forgive or to extend mercy to stronger peoples? And what would that mean for the global world? Hold on, I'm not going to say anything else about that. Just for the record, for the sake of being analogous, 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 society is the state. There's a beautiful picture of society of that being one. Does that feel like that? It's not an overlapping interest. Well, I'll just say one line as a response to what you have, which is that. In the Jewish tradition, we do not refer to the whole world as brothers and sisters. That's not a that's not a Jewish thing, um, and uh, and so you, there may be a real difference in how global politics cash out taking the Christian ethic versus the Jewish ethic. Maybe we'll have to work it out. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I want to offer one suggestion. Um, 
option to forgive the unrepentant your offenses. And I think it's kind of what happened is getting up with this scandal of the lack of transformation. Um, I, so I think when you, the way you framed it is as an injunction, but I think the word misrepresenting the transition uh, could be, at least in my perspective, to see it as an external exhortation as opposed to an interior um, compulsion or interior response. Right? That the, the, the need to forgive the unrepentant is because I have a deep interior experience that forgiveness is not helped for me. And I'm continually a recipient of forgiveness, so therefore, who am I to withhold forgiveness from anyone regardless of who they are? So the difference between an external injunction versus an interior response that compels me. And I'm wondering about the Jewish tradition, if there's a similar, how would a Jewish tradition answer that question of the external compelling versus an internal compelling? So what I think Catherine was trying to say is that the transformation of the heart through the cross that leads to this compulsion, as opposed to it being, you must do this as an external. Well, I mean, we don't, we definitely don't talk about things that way. Uh, that, that's not our idiom, certainly. Um, but it is the case, I mean, for sure, there, there is, you can find plenty of places in the expectation of the transformation of the heart, everything else that, but we would also say, and this is certainly Jewish way, that there is a commandment. If God says, love, love the Lord your God, that's a commandment. If God says, love your neighbor, that's a commandment. Now, there's all kinds of emotional things that, but to fail to do that is to fail to obey the commandment. So when a Jew reads the New Testament and God says, love your enemy, something like that, right? There might be a lot of transformation of the heart expected, but to fail to do that would literally be to fail to obey a commandment of God, which is to say the external. Um, but it, I'm happy for it to be both, right? Certainly we take the view that the Jewish people also might have to go forward. But it's a great
maybe we could say that mercy is not optional, mercy is not required in this moment, right? So the Christian commandment is to love your enemies, and we need to remember that justice is to an act of love. Um, and so in each moment, we have to parse out whether the, the correct response here, the loving response, isn't a response of mercy or a response of justice. Because sometimes the locking the person up is an act of justice, and it would be for his best and for the best of the community. In other cases, mercy is the best way to restore that but isn't that isn't what you've just said? Clearly, forgive my cold analytical mind. But it's like isn't what you've just said is mercy is required, but not in every instant. You said mercy is not mercy is not optional, um, but it's not required. Either, which is to say, it's required just in every instance that it's required. To be sure, yeah. So uh, yes, I didn't want to permit. I was worried that your question was saying uh, mercy is optional. Therefore, I can choose to be a just person and not a merciful person. So I think every Christian is required to act with a disposition towards mercy, but sometimes this situation would not require mercy, this situation would require justice. And you have to choose, right? you have to use your practical reason to determine in each situation whether this requires mercy. And choosing mercy in some instances you could choose wrong. Indeed, yeah. That's key. Yeah. That, that was the beautiful one. Could 
one could do the wrong, one could have too much justice or too much mercy in a given. I mean, the, the, the very image of a scale suggests that we have two competing things that are being balanced with each other. That's all. And Judaism also has the metaphor, the uh, the image of the scale for justice and mercy as well. I, I just want to that. This scale, this is where, I really don't want to stress this out because in this scale, the A side has the whole power of the compassion. So it should be thin, just thin. Like, if the justice is going to be heavy, the side has the compassion. So that's why I was ashamed of Oh, absolutely, but it reinforces the distinction of two different. To say that one is tinged with the other, say there's a thing here and there's a thing here, and they have to be in relation to each other. It's not to say that it's not Which I think is more of a. Not, I'm not saying it's more. Right, well, and here, I'm going to throw this out, and I'm just thinking this again. But the. If you're talking about this, about Not so. Right? That, that's very consequential. If those things can be different. 